You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Freedom of Thought and Societal Forces, Implementing the Demands of Modern Society, Collected Works, Volume 333. This is Lecture 3, entitled Realizing the Ideals of Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity Through Social Threefolding, given in Berlin on September 15, 1919. For modern humanity, the catastrophic world war and its aftermath have undoubtedly put a new face on questions of society and class. Unfortunately, far fewer people have acknowledged this change than we might hope. Nonetheless, it has occurred and will continue to make itself felt with ever-increasing emphasis. The facts themselves will force members of today's ruling circles to realize that their approach to social problems can no longer be limited to ideas and measures formulated in response to pressing events in individual economic sectors or to the demands of specific working class groups. These leading circles or classes will be forced to broaden their approach by focusing their thoughts and actions on the social and class issue as a whole which is indeed the most important issue facing us at present and in the near future. Not only the leading classes, but also the rank and file of the working class, will need to significantly alter their approach in order to effectively incorporate this new face of the social issue into their thinking, feeling and willing in ways adapted to the time we live in. For more than half a century, the working class has been grappling with ideas of socialism and social change. Unless we slept through the past few decades, we all saw the transformations that the social question has undergone in the rank and file of the working class. We saw the face it assumed when the horrible catastrophe of the World War broke out. With the provisional end of this catastrophe, the working class, at least in Central and Eastern Europe, found itself in a new situation, no longer simply yoked into a social order driven by the old ruling powers. To a considerable extent, the working class itself was called upon to participate in reshaping social institutions, an unprecedented state of affairs. But then we experienced an extraordinary tragedy, the ideas to which the working class had devoted decades of blood and sweat proved unsustainable when the time came to implement them. We experienced a great historical contradiction, a conflict actually, as we realized that the historical facts unfolding around us were poised to become humanity's great instructors. On the one hand, these facts made it clear that the ruling classes of the last three or four centuries had not developed any ideas capable of steering events now unfolding in the economy, 
and other aspects of human society. The people with the power to take real action simply allowed events to unfold on their own. The realities of life had grown too big for us, and the thoughts and ideas of the leading classes proved too narrow to embrace the facts. For a long time, this strange state of affairs was especially evident in the economy, where competition in the so-called free market emerged as the only regulating factor, leaving profit and the like in the dust. Economic activity was essentially left to chance, and proposals to limit the economy to issues of the production, circulation, and consumption of goods had no impact. A series of crises ensued. It became evident to anyone who chose to be conscious of it that the great empire states were ultimately infected with the same mindless activity and began to spin out of control. At that point, no one had any thoughts capable of guiding the inexorable course of events. Today we really ought to ponder our recent history and consider the possibility that we need a more profound insight into human affairs. Social questions now require a new and different type of understanding. We fail to realize the obvious. Our thoughts have fallen short when confronted with the momentum of recent events. In the last three or four centuries we have blithely assumed that business as usual is the practical approach and that anyone capable of a broader overview is either a utopian or an impractical idealist. Let me illustrate this statement with a seemingly personal observation, although the fact that it is personal is not the point. Today, when the destiny of individuals is so closely linked to the general destiny of humankind, only sincere facts observed by individuals adequately illustrate the impulses and driving forces at work in public life. In the early spring of 1914, just months before the outbreak of the so-called World War, I gave a series of lectures on spiritual scientific subjects to a small group of people in Vienna. I would have been laughed off the stage if I had said the same thing to a larger audience. In the course of one of these lectures, I was asked to give my views on current social developments. I said that to supersensible perception, events in the public life of the civilized world appear very seriously diseased, as if penetrated by a social carcinoma. I said that this insidious sickness in our economy and our society in general, would soon break forth in the form of a terrible catastrophe. That was what I saw beneath the surface of events. But in the spring of 1914, what did they call people who spoke of impending catastrophe? They called us impractical idealists, which was simply a way of to avoid calling us idiots. What I felt obliged to say at that time contrasted starkly with what so-called practical people were saying. These responsible, uh, self-styled pragmatists were really just creatures of habit, but they belittled anyone who was attempting to understand contemporary history on the basis of ideas of whatever sort. But what were the pragmatists saying at that time? 
one of them, the foreign minister of a central European country, announced to the illustrious representatives of his nation that admirable progress was being made toward a general relaxation of tension in the political situation and that we could look forward to a state of peace among the European nations in the near future. He added that our friendly connections to St. Petersburg were and would continue to be the best they had ever been since the St. Petersburg cabinet was ignoring the press hounds thanks to the efforts of the Russian government. Moreover, our negotiations with England, which would soon be concluded, were expected to result in the best possible relationships with that country in the very near future. Now, the man who said this was a pragmatist, and any predictions to the contrary were murky theories. I could give you countless other examples of pragmatic insightfulness at the beginning of that terrible period of time. The facts speak for themselves. It was actually very instructive to hear these pragmatists talking about peace and then a few months later to see the peace violated to such an extent that the civilized nations then spent several years killing ten to twelve million people at a conservative estimate and crippling three times as many. I mention these facts not for sensational effect, but simply because they indicate the inadequacy of people's thinking. We will see these events in the right light only when we allow the facts to tell us what we need to do to restore healthy social circumstances. We should not be thinking about minor adjustments. Significant relearning and significant changes in thinking are required. We face a major day of reckoning. Nothing that has grown old, unsound, and rotten can be allowed to carry over into our efforts toward the future. Such statements about humanity's overarching concerns also apply individually to our political and economic affairs. Wherever we look, people are expressing thoughts that are inadequate for coming to grips with realities. The leading classes have the power to control practical activity, but lack any truly practical ideas and thoughts to put into practice. Confronting these leading classes is the rank and file of the working class, rigorously self-educated in Marxist thought for more than half a century. It is relatively easy, sometimes very easy, to objectively disprove the economic thinking of the working class, rank and file, and leadership, but that is not the point. The proletarian theory, the fallout from this intensive schooling in Marxist thought in the hearts and minds of the working class, is an historical reality. But when this theory had an opportunity to prove itself in actual practice when the old order collapsed, it revealed a very understandable shortcoming. Over the last few centuries, especially the nineteenth, the influence of private capital and modern technology had increasingly limited the working class to exclusively economic activity and defined each individual's work very narrowly. Individual routines were essentially all the working class saw of an economy that was constantly expanding its scope. Not surprisingly, 
the working class experienced the development of the modern economy in terms of its fateful impact on individual bodies and souls, but never acquired an overview of the driving forces at work in this development. The workers' position in the economy prevented them from achieving any objective view of the economy's structure or management. All too understandably, we are now seeing the fruits of this state of affairs. The subconscious, instinctive drives and demands of the working class have given rise to an extensive socialist theory that is essentially very far removed from economic or other social realities because the working class was rendered incapable of achieving any overview of the actual driving forces behind these realities and was therefore forced to accept the one-sided view Marxism offered. Over the centuries certain concepts that are completely justified yet fail to address the realities of the situation have become deeply entrenched in the minds of the working class. Let me give you an example. Just think of the agitation aroused in the working class by its leaders' theoretical views, such as the words, quote, In the future, production must occur not for its own sake, but only to support consumption. Close quote. This statement is certainly pertinent and even, in quotes, true, unlike many contemporary slogans. But it becomes an elusive, empty abstraction if we do not think it through practically, that is, with real insight into economic conditions. What does it mean in actual practice? What are its implications for how we do things? Simply demanding that production be matched to consumption has no effect on actual practice. It simply conjures up an image of how wonderful it would be if our economy were dominated by realistic prospects of consumption instead of by the profit motive. Nothing in this demand suggests how the economy would have to be organized to bring about the desired state of affairs. The same could be said about many phrases that have become proletarian party slogans. Although some of these slogans are based on profound truths, they have become abstractions that sound like utopian visions of some indefinite point in the future. If we mean well by the working class, we must realize that in spite of its justified demands, its working theory is far removed from life's realities, because workers have been isolated from the full scope of economic activity and secluded in locations where all they ever see is fragments of the larger reality. This is the conflict I wanted to point out. On the one hand, the ruling classes have the power to influence the actual state of affairs, but no ideas that would allow them to do so. On the other hand, the working class has ideas, but these ideas are highly abstract and remote from the realities of the situation. Such statements point to the activity of historical forces and impulses that are more fundamentally significant than any events in human history. The true weight of phrases such as, quote, the absence of ideas in leading circles, close quote, and, quote, the impracticality of proletarian theory, close quote, can be felt only if we sense the mutually destructive impact of these conflicting trends 
in modern developments. The profound contrast between the thinking, emotions, intentions and actions of the leading class on the one hand and the longings, desires and will impulses of the working class on the other has deepened into a veritable abyss. We do not even really understand the full depth of modern proletarian demands. When we hear proletarian theories about surplus value, about the need to match production to consumption, or about the collectivization of private property, we certainly understand the words, but they are meant to elicit logical criticism, excuse me, but are they meant to elicit logical criticism in response? To a corporate lawyer or the director of a corporation, the logical response is that the sum total of surplus value is so low that if it were shared equally, no one would get anything at all. But what could possibly be more naive than relating to the theory of surplus value in this way? I do not mean to dispute the gentleman's calculations, but they are not the point. Such attempts at, in quotes, refuting proletarian theories are like holding a match under the thermometer if the temperature in the room is not to your liking. Attempts to, in quotes, correct the thermometer have no impact on the underlying cause. To take the theories of the modern working class at face value and then refute them is simply naive, because these theories express much deeper concerns. Like a thermometer that indicates but does not cause the temperature of a room, proletarian theories are indicators of more profound factors at work in modern class issues. In an era dominated by private capital and technology, we first encounter class issues in economic form, namely in the demands of a working class whose experience is limited entirely to the economy. As a result, we tend to take these issues at face value and view them as purely economic in character. We fail to see what lies behind proletarian theories about capital, labor, and goods. Working-class people experience all of human life in the economic field, so their perspective on social issues is also entirely economic. Anyone with the opportunity to achieve a broader view, however, should be able to distinguish three clearly different spheres of life in which the three essential social issues are revealed. Anyone who has learned to think and feel with rather than about the working class sees through the key words of socialist theory to what is stirring in the souls of the best of the working class. But what are these key words? The first, as I have already pointed out, is surplus value. Anyone who has associated extensively with working class people on a personal level must realize how deeply this concept has impacted proletarian hearts and minds. During crucial years in the development of the modern workers' movement, I was working here in Berlin at the Workers' School founded by Wilhelm Liebknecht. From life experience, therefore, I know more than some union leaders. How can I put this without causing offense? I certainly know more than socialist revolution mongers. But what does surplus value mean? 
Workers produce goods. Business owners then sell the finished goods and pay the workers enough so they can stay alive and continue working. The value the workers' labor adds to the raw materials more than covers the costs of production. The rest is surplus value. What Walter Rathenau, for example, says about this excess is certainly correct. I do not want to further malign this controversial figure. <clears throat> with regard to this overall class, with regard to the overall class issue, however, he is gravely mistaken. It is certainly true that surplus value, if distributed equally, would not suffice to improve the lot of the rank and file. We cannot get to the bottom of the matter through unsubstantiated accounting operations. But is this surplus value really as small as Rathenau's, in quotes, accurate calculations indicate? Of course not. If it were, Berlin would have no theaters, universities, prep schools, or any of the other trappings of human culture, all of which are largely supported by so-called surplus value. For us, however, the point is not how surplus value comes to the surface in goods and in the circulation of money. The point is that this catchword expresses the entire relationship of modern cultural life to the rank and file, who cannot participate in it directly. In my years as an instructor of working-class adults, I always attempted to speak to my students in universally human terms and about subjects accessible to all, regardless of class. As a result, I know something about what the character of a universal education would look like and how different it would be from the intellectual and cultural education that has developed over the past three or four centuries under the influence of private capital and the industrial economy. Let me give another personal example that I hope will illustrate a more general principle. When my words resonated with my working-class students, I could tell that they were receptive to the information or perceptions I was attempting to convey. There were other times, however, when our classes had to do the fashionable thing and participate in the, in quotes, culture of the leading classes. Taking my working-class students to museums and the like put bourgeois culture on display for them but it did nothing to bridge the gap between it and their intellectual needs and longings. Honest teachers admitted it. The rest mouthed clichés about educating the masses and so on. We understand art, science, and religion only when they are based on the shared perceptions and emotions of our peer group, not when there is a rift between those who are supposed to enjoy culture and those who actually can. We experienced this discrepancy as a profound cultural lie, and it is now time to stop obscuring it with good intentions and see it for what it is. The lie consisted in establishing all kinds of adult education centers to impart, in quotes, culture to people who could not find a bridge to it in their own lives. Workers stood on the other side of the chasm, looking across at bourgeois art, conventions, religion, and science, but not understanding them, 
seeing them only as inaccessible luxuries of interest only to the leading class and as the fruits of surplus value. For members of the working class, surplus value is not just an indicator like a thermometer, but a culture that excluded them, though their labor produced it. When we understand not only the theory of surplus value, but also its unforeseen impacts in real life, we recognize the first essential component, the cultural face, so to speak, of the all-encompassing issue of social justice. As technology, modern science and capitalism developed over the last three or four centuries, the emerging culture increasingly reflected only a bourgeois inner life, separated by a deep chasm from the life of the working class. The cultural elite neglected the education and culture of the masses. It's enough to make your heart bleed to think about how members of the upper classes gathered to talk about brotherly love and all such Christian virtues in rooms heated with coal, mined by children as young as nine. In the mid-1800s, these poor children literally never saw daylight on weekdays because they went down into the mines before sunrise and came up only after sundown. Credit for later improvements in these conditions is due to proletarian demands, not to any effort on the part of the upper classes. Today anyone who talks about this history is accused of rabble-rousing. Not true! The intention is simply to point out that over the last three or four centuries cultural and intellectual affairs have become increasingly isolated from the real life of ordinary people. It has become quite possible to speak about morality, Christian virtues, religion, brotherly love, loving your neighbor, etc., without taking action or having any effect on real practical everyday life. This is the key point revealed by the cultural face of the social justice issue. All of this points to the field of education. Along with other important public aspects of culture, the school system has been absorbed into the state over the last three or four hundred years as individual baronial territories and their economies merged into nation-states. Today we are justifiably proud of having freed science, education and cultural affairs in general from their medieval affiliation with religion. We certainly do not wish for a return to the Middle Ages. We want to move forward, not backward. But now times have changed, and it is not enough to pride ourselves on the fact that our intellectual institutions no longer serve the Church. An example drawn from quite close at hand illustrates that their situation, although different today, is not necessarily more independent. This story involves a scientist whom I respect greatly. It is not intended to belittle him in any way. As the General Secretary of the Prussian Academy of Science, he gave a well-received speech that described the Academy's relationship to the State, saying in effect that the members of this scholarly body deemed it their highest honor to serve as the scientific bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern. This is only one possible example out of hundreds of thousands, and they all raise the question, what 
has taken the place of the church? What does the public intellectual activity serve today? Until recently the consequences of state control of education were not too bad, but they will certainly become worse if governments such as those in Eastern Europe come to power and impose their terribly regimented type of instruction which promises to destroy all culture. If you look to the future as well as to the past, you will realize that the time has come for cultural and intellectual affairs to take their place as an independent and self-governing organ in the social organism. Such statements encounter countless prejudices. Today, disregarding the many blessings of a government-run education system is considered a sign of insanity. These benefits will be felt, however, only when the entire education system, from kindergarten teachers to university instructors and all related cultural affairs, becomes self-governing rather than being administered by the state. This is one of the major shifts we must encourage today. The first group of people receptive to the idea of implementing social threefolding was the group that also stands behind the first truly independent comprehensive school. This model school associated with the Waldorf Astoria factory is based on educational theories founded on a real knowledge of the growing, developing human being. Social class and economic status make no difference in how children aged 7 to 15 should be taught, but we must be familiar with their development before we can teach them. I became acutely aware of the extent to which we now accept state control of education as a matter of course when I had to develop the preparatory course for the faculty of the Waldorf School in Stuttgart. We have no idea of all the implications of this matter-of-fact acceptance. In fact, however, state control of education has come to a head only in the last few decades. Since our actions in life must be based on experience, let me point out that I am not speaking with the flippancy of youth, but from the perspective of someone who has nearly six decades of life behind him. If you are my age, you will remember a time when the school system was still vital, the curriculum was short, and teachers had to put their own reading and experience to creative use in presenting their subject matter. Today, however, the curriculum is not short. It is a big, thick book that prescribes not only what to do in any given school year, but also how to do it. What ought to be left to teachers' initiative is increasingly being defined by law. Until we develop a clear and adequate sense of the inherently anti-social impact of state regulation of education, we will not be ready to contribute to humankind's recovery. Establishing the independence of cultural and intellectual affairs from the state is therefore the first key point in threefolding the social organism. In future, the cultural administrative organ of the social organism will preside only over active cultural workers. In a new model republic that reflects all aspects of life, instruction will bear little resemblance to that mandated by today's centralized governments. 
lesson content will not be subject to regulation, but will be adapted creatively to the needs and developmental stages of the learners. We will not simply ask what young people need to learn at age 13 or 16 in order to become in order to become good socialists. We will ask what intrinsic abilities can we encourage in people of this age? What inborn forces can we help them realize? Excuse me. What inborn forces can we help them release from the depths of their being so they will not become weak-willed, broken individuals like so many today? but will be able to cope with their destiny and make their unique contributions to life. All this belongs to the first organ of the threefold social organism. Of course, these ideas will initially meet with questions and objections, as I recently experienced in a city in southern Germany. During the discussion after my lecture, a university professor responded more or less as follows, quote, In the future, Germany will be a poor nation, you are trying to make cultural affairs independent of the state, but poor people will not be able to pay for an independent culture because they have no money. We will be forced to dip into the state's coffers after all, since taxes will have to be used to pay for the educational system. But if schools are supported by the state, how can they avoid state oversight? Close quote. <clears throat> I could only reply that I found it very strange that the professor believed that, in the future, tax monies would simply appear in the state's coffers without being taken from poor people. We repeatedly encounter such careless thinking in all aspects of life. We must counteract it with a pragmatic thinking that is capable of grasping life's realities and developing practical programs that can then be implemented. Like cultural affairs, especially the education system, the economy must also become independent. <clears throat> it is strange to note that two contradictory demands, namely democracy and socialism, have recently emerged from the depths of human nature. Before the catastrophic war, these two contradictory impulses were actually welded into a single party, the Social Democrats, which is about the same as saying wooden iron. Although socialism and democracy are incompatible, both are sincere and honest demands. Now that the catastrophic world war is over and we are faced with its aftermath, the demand for socialism has come to the fore and wants nothing to do with a democratic parliament. Socialist demands are presented with no idea of the actual realities in the form of highly abstract slogans such as, quote, we must seize political power, close quote, and, quote, dictatorship of the working class, close quote. These catchwords, however, emerge from the subconscious depths of socialist sensibilities and actually prove that people are finally grasping the incompatibility of socialist and democratic sensibilities. Because the future will have to accommodate life's realities, not slogans, we will be forced to acknowledge both that socialists are right in feeling uncomfortable about democracy and that democrats are right in being horrified by the words dictatorship of the working class. So what are the realities of this seemingly contradictory situation? 
We simply need to see the state's relationship to the economy in the same way that we viewed its relationship to cultural affairs. In recent times, people in general and self-styled progressives in particular have favored increased state intervention in the economy. The postal system, communications, railroads, etc. have all come under state control and people now want to see this authority extended. Today I can devote only a few words to this very broad topic which deserves to be presented in expert terminology and with countless examples from recent history. Due to time constraints, I run the risk of being called amateurish, which is not the case. If we take socialism seriously, however, the progressive predilection for state control will be revealed in its true colors. Even more revealing is what Friedrich Engels wrote in one of his clearest moments in his pamphlet titled The Development of Socialism from a Utopia to a Science. He said something to the effect that if we survey recent developments in government, we will find that it has assumed control of the branches of production, of the circulation of goods, etc. While involved in this economic activity, however, the state is also involved in governing people, providing the laws that guide the economic and other actions of individuals. An economically active entity also establishes the laws governing economic behavior. In the future, this will have to change. Engels was quite right in thinking that managing the economy would have to be separated from governing human beings, and that economic management should be responsible only for the production and circulation of goods. This view, although totally correct, is only half or perhaps a quarter of the truth, because if the state withdraws from managing the production and circulation of goods, its function of determining the terms and conditions of labor must still find a home somewhere. But this home must be found in a democratic government rather than in a centralized authorian state. This means that the impulses of socialism and democracy point to two distinct remnants of the former state that must become independent organs in the social organism, along with an independent administration for cultural and intellectual affairs. One of these organs is the administrative structure of the economy, the other that of civil rights, which deals with everything individuals of voting age are free and competent to judge. Inherent in the demand for democracy is the historical fact that humankind is now maturing to the point of assuming legal responsibility within the framework of an independent sphere of rights for all aspects of life in which individuals are inherently equal. In other words, for everything that can be decided collectively by all individuals of legal age, either through a direct vote or through their elected representatives. In the future, therefore, civil rights will need to be established on an independent basis. This remnant of the former authoritarian state will be the first true constitutional state under the rule of law. Its laws will apply only to those aspects of life 
that are legitimately subject to the collective judgment of all individuals of legal age. These aspects include a common subject of discussion among workers, but once again their words must be taken only as a social thermometer of sorts. In another statement that has made a deep impression on the hearts and minds of the working class, Karl Marx said that a humanly unworthy existence results when workers are forced to sell their labor like a commodity in the employment market. Like any manufactured item sold for a specific price, labor is also bought and sold for a price, that is a wage. <coughs> in recent human affairs, this statement is less significant for its content than for its lightning-like impact on the working class which is almost inconceivable to the leading classes. The origin of this impact lies in the chaotic, inorganic way in which the regulation of labor has been subsumed into the business cycle and integrated into the management of legitimate economic factors, which are limited to the production, circulation, and consumption of goods. The damage will be undone only by eliminating the ability to regulate the type, scope, and duration of labor, whether intellectual or manual, from the economic cycle. Regulating labor does not belong to the economy, where wealthier individuals and groups have the power to impose terms of work on the economically disadvantaged. Regulating what one person does for another belongs in the sphere of rights, where all individuals of legal age meet as equals. Economic requirements and assumptions cannot be allowed to dictate how much work I must do for someone else. In the future such issues will be the jurisdiction of a democratic government limited to the sphere of rights, in contrast to today's authoritarian state. Here, too, attempts to explain this issue encounter any number of preconceived biases. It is all too easy for people to say that as long as the economy continues to be driven by free market conditions, it goes without saying that recompense for labor depends on production and on the price of goods. In the future, however, we will recognize labor, which will be subject to state regulation as a rights issue, as an inherent constraint on the economy, just like the constraints imposed by an industry's base in natural resources. We will then see the fallacy in managers' attempts to align the costs of production, which include labor, with their income projections. That would be as ridiculous as landowners getting together and looking at their account books for the year 1918 and saying, we need to produce as much this year as last year, and since it's already September, that means we will have to we will have to have so and so many days of rain and so and so many of sunshine before the end of the year. Just as agricultural prices are now determined on the basis of natural constraints, the number of hours individuals must work to support themselves will be determined on a purely democratic basis, and prices will have to be adjusted accordingly. We must learn completely new ways of thinking instead of talking about small incremental improvements. 
Economic unrest will fade away only when labor is seen as the legitimate purview of an independent, democratic, common ground where all individuals of legal age meet as equals. When free individuals contribute their legally protected work to an independent economy, and when production, not labor, is governed by contractual agreements in the economic realm. This is what we need to understand. I can only touch on this subject in the short time available today. I would like to give an entire series of lectures about it, but unfortunately that will not be possible during this visit to Berlin. Before we close, however, I must still indicate how the economy, the third organ, will take shape in the threefold social organism. The management of capital, land, the means of production, which are also capital, by the way, and labor, cannot remain part of the economy. The economy can be responsible only for managing the production, circulation, and consumption of goods. How prices are set is the germinal cell of the economy, so to speak. In a more circumscribed economy, which should be based entirely on expert knowledge and competence, how will price setting be accomplished? It will certainly not be left to chance in the free market, as it has been so far in the national and international economies. In the context of associations between individual branches of industry and consumer cooperatives, individuals with the necessary expertise will set prices in a holistic and rational manner, avoiding the crises provoked by the haphazard effects of supply and demand. In the new economy, where determining the type and character of labor falls to the sphere of rights, what workers receive in exchange for producing goods will allow them to meet all their needs until the next production cycle is complete. The following example is rough, amateurish, and superficial, but it will have to do for today. If I make a pair of boots, the mutually agreed-upon sale price must allow me to purchase everything I need to meet my needs until I have made another pair. Of course, society will have to establish organizations to ensure that the needs of widows, orphans, and the sick and disabled are met, and to provide for education and the like. The setting of equitable and realistic prices, however, which is exclusively the jurisdiction of the socially responsible economy, will depend on the formation of corporate bodies for that purpose, whether elected or appointed by joint producer-consumer associations. Equitable price setting must be supported by the living structure of the economy as a whole. I am not referring to the type of planned economy proposed by Müllendorf. As an example of what I mean, let's suppose that certain manufactured items tend to become too expensive, which means that too few of them are being produced. When this happens, contractual agreements must direct workers to the branches of industry that can produce these articles. Conversely, if an item becomes too inexpensive, some of the factories producing it must be idled and their workers redirected into other branches of production. Those who reject this process as too difficult, preferring to stick with small improvements in social conditions, 
cannot expect real change. <clears throat> Although the state has taken the economy under its wing, I have shown you how associations shaped entirely by economic forces can and must make the economy self-managing in a way that preserves individual initiative to the greatest possible extent. This cannot happen in a planned economy or through collectivization of the means of production. It can happen only through associations that develop within independent branches of industry and through their agreements with consumer cooperatives. Until now the leading classes have initiated the nationalization of industry. It would be a terrible mistake to take this process to the extreme. Radical collectivization would totally undermine the connection of the resulting planned economy to external economic forces. By contrast, the associations proposed by the threefolding movement are intended to preserve both the full independent initiative of entrepreneurs and the possibility of connections between self-contained economic entities. An independent economy will also involve changes in private property laws. Socialist theory demands the abolition of private property and its conversion to public ownership. But to informed individuals these slogans are just meaningless words. Let me illustrate what they could mean. As you know, we are very proud of our philosophers. But our pride does not prevent sound thinking about intellectual property. We realize that intellectual property is not produced by a socialized economy or a collective, but by creative, actively involved individuals. <clears throat> it simply does not work to separate individuals with their abilities and talents from the process of intellectual production. Nonetheless, our thinking on this subject is socially responsible. At the end of a legally prescribed time period, after the death of the inventor or author, intellectual property no longer belongs to the heirs, but it enters the public domain, where it, in quotes, belongs to those who can best make it accessible to the general public. Perhaps because we place no special value on spiritual or intellectual activity, we accept time limits on copyrights as a matter of course. But we make no attempt to deal with physical private property in the same way. Private property should also remain in the hands of its originator only as long as that person is present and applying his or her individual abilities to its management. When the original owner is no longer present, physical personal property should pass into the public domain that is, to those with the most ability to administer it for the good of all. This conclusion is readily evident to unbiased thinking. Take, for example, the building of our College of Spiritual Science called the Goetheanum in Dornach near Basel, Switzerland. We have been calling it the Goetheanum ever since the world became Woodrow Wilsonized, and we German-speaking people needed to present our intellectual heritage boldly to the entire world. Imagine the Goetheanum as the foreign representative of Germanic culture. That's something completely different from, than chauvinism. <clears throat> but the point I want to emphasize is something else. The College of Spiritual Science that is now under construction is being managed by people 
with the ability to bring such a venture to life. But who will own it when these individuals are no longer among the living? It will not be bequeathed to anyone, but will pass into the hands of those best able to administer it in the service of humanity. It actually belongs to no one. <clears throat> Socially responsible economic thinking will result in future recovery. In my book titled Social Renewal, I presented further details about the transfer and circulation of private property and demonstrated that the social organism needs to be organically subdivided into three independent but interacting organs, a self-administering cultural organ based on freedom in cultural and intellectual affairs, a democratic government that is responsible for civil rights and based on the judgment of all individuals of legal age, and an independent economy that rests on the competence and expertise of individuals and corporate entities and the mutual associations they form. Ever since I began presenting these seemingly new and unfamiliar ideas in Germany, people have been saying that my intention was to cut the state, which needs to be a unity, into three pieces. My response was, if I say a horse has to stand on four legs, am I cutting it into four pieces? Is it a unity only if it is able to stand on one leg? It is equally silly to claim that because a human community must be a unity, all of its different aspects must merge into a single amorphous whole. In the future, we will no longer allow ourselves to be hypnotized by the abstract concept of the centralized state we will realize that it has to stand on three legs, a self-administering cultural and intellectual system, a political structure based on democratic legislation, and an economy with its own expert administration. More than a century ago a half-truth was proclaimed in Western Europe and became deeply inscribed in human hearts and minds in the form of the ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity. The people of the 19th century, who then pointed out the basic incompatibility of these ideals, were certainly not fools. They said that neither liberty nor fraternity can exist where absolute equality prevails. These objections were absolutely correct, but only because they emerged at a time when we were hypnotized by the idea of the so-called centralized state. They will no longer apply when we shake off this hypnotic trance and understand the need for a threefold subdivision of the social organism. In conclusion, please allow me to present a comparison that illustrates issues I would have liked to discuss at greater length than was possible today. I realize that a less sketchy presentation would have been needed for you to truly understand these issues. In conclusion, however, let me mention how the centralized state hypnotized people who wanted it to be governed by the three great ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity. We will have to learn to look at the state differently. At present we are accustomed to seeing the centralized state as a divinity. We are like Faust saying to sixteen-year-old Gretchen, quote, He who embraces and sustains all, does he not also embrace and sustain you, me, and himself? Close quote. We relate similarly to the hypnotic idol of the centralized state. 
We fail to realize that it must be subdivided into three for the sake of humankind's future salvation. It is easy to imagine factory owners speaking to their employees in a semblance of Faust's words, quote, The state which embraces and sustains all, does it not also embrace and sustain itself, you and me? Close quote. But they would have to clasp their hands over their mouths so as not to say me too loudly. The necessity of threefolding the social organism must be acknowledged, especially in proletarian circles. Recognizing its necessity is crucial to understanding it. In the future, the call for liberty, equality, and fraternity must not ignore the inherent incompatibility of these ideals. Instead, we must recognize that liberty applies to the cultural and intellectual system, equality to all individuals of legal age in a democratic political system, and fraternity to a self-administering economy that nourishes and sustains individuals. As soon as we apply these three ideals to the threefold social organism in this way, they will no longer be contradictory. May a time come when we look back on all the pain and suffering that followed Versailles and see it simply as a starting point. May we realize that although our outer possessions can be taken from us, we can still think back on the turn of the 18th to the 19th century and reclaim for ourselves the great intellectual property of Central Europe, the work of Lessing, Herder, Schiller, Goethe, and so on. If we do so, the hardships of our times will resound with the second half of the hundred-year-old truth, truth of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Although Central Europe may have lost its outer independence, these words will resound in inner freedom and independence for all the world to hear. Liberty in cultural affairs, equality for democratically governed individuals, fraternity in the economy. These token words sum up what we must say and how we must think and feel in order to achieve a comprehensive and holistic grasp of the social issues of our time. When many people achieve this understanding, today's questions and issues will become tomorrow's practical solutions. The end of Lecture 3